Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, June the 18th, 2022. It is currently 2.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, if you missed part one to this discussion, please go back and listen to it because I think we covered some very important ground. I'm not going to be able to review everything. Please listen to part one of this discussion. But this is part two, and I want to remind you of really kind of what we are discussing by giving you what will be considered a very controversial take but one that really sparked this entire discussion because it appears that someone saw this comment, then they emailed me saying, I would like your, I would like for you to do an episode in regards to not only this one statement, but to the entire discussion. And that's what I'm attempting to do. They probably thought I could try to address this in one episode, which probably means they're not very familiar with me because there's no way I could do this in one episode. So here is part two, but let's remind you of this very important statement that you're going to find very controversial. Your first reaction is going to be like, absolutely not, but I want you to think about it and let's discuss it. Are you ready? Here we go. Purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism. Purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism. Now, I think this, first of all, I know many will say absolutely not, absolutely not, but I think this statement reveals to to me what I, in fact, I talk about it all the time. I think there's a major problem in the church, and the problem is this. We always seem to run, and, and I say this all the time, we run to the window, and we look out the window like nosy neighbors going, ooh, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. Look at all the problems out there. That's going to destroy the church. That's going to destroy our people. We got to protect our people. We got to fight against it. And sometimes we ignore, instead of looking, uh, instead of, uh, I, did I say mirror? We keep looking out the window and when we should stop looking out the window like nosy neighbors looking at what everyone else is doing. And sometimes we need to stop, walk away from the window and go find a mirror and look in the mirror to see what's going on inside the church. Sometimes the greatest danger is that which is in the church, not that which is outside the window. We lo- Christians love to look out, look out, out of windows Instead of looking into mirrors, we look out of windows to point to everyone else's problems and their issues. And we're like, that's going to destroy us. That's going to kill us. But really, the issue is always inside the church. It's inside of us. And many times when Christians look out the window to see all of the problems, what we have a tendency to do is to come up with solutions to those problems outside the window. In many cases, the solution is, I hate to say it, is more poisonous and more deadly than the the problem outside the church. We see a problem outside the church and we come up with what we think is the solution. And in many cases, the solution is deadly, poisonous, unbiblical, ungodly, heretical, and slowly but surely, it begins to try to wipe biblical Christianity off the face of the earth. When many times the church looks out the window and we're like, look how bad culture is. What are we going to do? So in many cases, the church turns to politics 
as the answer instead of, well, to the Bible. So there, there's lots of problems with this mindset of look out there, look out there. And I think for a long time, the church looked out there and said, feminism, feminism, phys- feminism, the sexual revolution. Look how bad it is. We're going to come up with a solution. And the solution, well, sometimes called purity culture, did it help or did it do more damage? Did it do more damage than the feminism? Did it do more damage than the sexual revolution? I guess it depends on your perspective. Some will clearly say, yes, it did. Others may say it did not, but it raises the discussion and it raises the topic of purity culture. And that's what we started talking about. Now, the email I received, if you remember, started this way. If you are able, I would love for you to do an episode on this ultra thought provoking thread on purity culture, and then they give me some of their thoughts. I haven't really got into their thoughts so much because this is what I decided to do. You want me to do a discussion about purity culture. I, you, you send me to a, a Twitter thread that says purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism. There's lots of people who have posted deconstruction videos on YouTube, on uh, TikTok about how they're deconstructing because they were scarred and they were damaged and their lives were destroyed because of purity culture. Though some of the icons within purity culture have basically renounced it and walked away from it and saying that it was damaging, that it hurt people. There's been so much discussion about the damage of purity culture, purity culture, purity culture, purity culture. But I don't know. Have we... To me, this is what we have to do. Before we can say yes or no, before we can agree or disagree, don't we all need to establish a clear definition of what we mean by purity culture? Don't we need to define it? Because I think for some people, purity culture is nothing more than the biblical teaching on purity. And that they, they, they're not deconstructing from purity culture. They're deconstructing from the Bible, the biblical morality on sexuality. Well, that's a, that's your, your issue is not with purity culture. Your issue is with biblical morality, right? And then I think there are others who were hurt by purity culture. They were damaged by purity culture, but purity culture and that definition has nothing, I think goes beyond biblical morality. So we got to try to distinguish between purity culture. Let's do this. We need to draw a distinction between biblical purity and purity culture. I think biblical purity is what the Bible teaches in regards to sexual morality and sexual purity. Purity culture is the church's attempt to get people to live. It's the church's attempt to promote a a biblical purity, but maybe in an unbiblical way. Think of it this way, the Pharisees. We know that the Pharisees in many cases spoke of God's law, but in many cases they added to the law. They kept adding to the law. Hey, we don't want anyone, we don't want anyone to violate the law. So they added rules and they added burdens and it became a legalistic concept of, and it became spiritual prideful. And it just, it was all, it, uh, Jesus renounced it and condemned it over and over and over and over the Pharisaical system. He condemned it. It no, no matter how much they claimed loyalty to God's word, no matter how much they claimed that they wanted purity in the lives of people, they created a system that became literally opposed to the biblical understanding. I think purity culture may be attempt, maybe in an attempt to try to get people to live to biblical morality, but it turned into something other, in many cases, maybe contrary to it, and it did great harm. 
So we've got to draw a distinction between biblical purity and purity culture. There is a difference between the two, and the church lost sight of that. So that's what we need to talk about, and we need to see if we can advance this conversation a little more. Now, I'm borrowing a little bit of this from an article called What You Should Know About Purity Culture by Joe Carter. I'm borrowing a little bit from it. I'm I'm taking it, I'm adding my own, and I'm going to the email, and I'm going to this Twitter thread. I'm bringing in all kinds of, of, of resources for us to have, hopefully, a good theological discussion about it. So let's do this, all right? What is purity culture? What is purity culture? They define in the article, purity culture, is the term often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity. And remember, I don't like that definition. I think purity culture is man's attempt at, I'm going to say, oh, I know I'm not, I'm going to bother some people here. I think purity culture became a man's attempt, a fleshly attempt to try to promote and to achieve biblical purity. I think, I think the purity culture was a fleshly attempt to achieve and promote biblical purity. I think purity culture was a fleshly attempt to achieve and promote biblical purity. Because I think purity culture ultimately demonstrated that it that it, there was there was major issues with it. There was major issues with it. So I'm going to say purity culture was a fleshly attempt to achieve biblical purity. Right? Does, 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 I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. And biblical purity, well, it's defined right here. First Thessalonians chapter four. I'm going to read it from the translation that I have closest to me. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. For this is God's will, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all those offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. But please note this again. This is very important. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. That is, that is biblical purity. Stay away from sexual immorality. That, that's, that's the biblical call. Now, men, church, Christian culture says, okay, how do we achieve this? And then we come up with, in many cases, a fleshly attempt to achieve it. I'm not saying that the motives were wrong, just like you could argue, were the Pharisees' motives always wrong? I think in many cases, the Pharisees wanted people to achieve a biblical morality. Hey, God's given us his law. We've got to keep it. But they came up with fleshly ways and attempt to do that legalistic ways in which attempted to accomplish that. I think that is the distinction, all right? So we talked a little bit about purity culture. And rem- remember, I, I want to make sure we draw a distinction, biblical purity and then purity culture, may a fleshly attempt to achieve pure biblical purity and to promote it. 
And I think there were three very negative things that arose from within purity culture. And I gave a little bit of my history of growing up in it or becoming a Christian really at the beginning of it. And then all of the things that, that kind of came out of it. We talked about a lot of it. Three very negative things, I think, that arose from it. Number one, sexual sin is the worst sin ever. I mean, there are so many sins that occur that barely get a yawn. It doesn't, it doesn't even get a shrug, or sh- a shrug of the shoulders. It doesn't even get a, oh, it's just like sin. It's, it's just, there's just the sins. We'll call them the venial sins that nobody's going to be church disciplined about. It's not going to be scandalous. It's, those are just the, the acceptable sins. Not, they're almost acceptable not only within the church culture. They're acceptable even within the, the broader culture. It's just kind of like, okay, those sins happen. They happen all the time. We're not going to worry about it. But sexual sin always, it's scandal. It's like the end of the world, burn everything down. It's the greatest sin ever. It, it, there must be discipline. There must be shame. There must be humiliation. There must be exposed. Everything must be just burned to the ground because of it. And you have to ask yourself, what, what is that? Like, why? Why? Why does it get treated almost in a completely different category? Second, Another, and, and I think that there's some damage that, 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 that causes. Number two, basically from purity culture, this idea that a woman basically has her virginity and purity to offer. And if she loses that before marriage, she's damaged goods. Hey, as a woman, all you really have to offer is your purity and virginity. And once you lose that, you don't have anything to offer. You're damaged goods. And who would want to be with damaged goods? That, that's almost the message that was used to try to promote biblical purity in the minds of females. Hey, look, you don't want to be damaged goods. You, you, and, and it's like, whoa, what in the world are you, what, what are you doing with that? And then you basically, like, once, once the female sins, then what, what do you do? Just, just give up. It's, it's over. It's over. That's how sexual sin is always treated, right? You can commit other sins and you get a second chance, right? The blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus can wash away any sin and you're still useful. You commit a sexual sin, the blood stops being able to have its power. And now, mm, I don't know, you're, you, you're, that's it. You're done. You're finished. You're finished. Other sins, you're okay. That sin, you're not. Number three, it's a woman's responsibility to protect men from sinning. It was almost, and we talked about this last time. I'm not going to go back through it. But these were three major problematic ideas that are that are connected with purity culture. I don't know if I can say they immediately arose from within it, but they definitely are connected with it. All right, do, do we have all of that? Okay, I'm trying to, to review as fast as I can. So we're going to talk today just a little bit. How did purity culture get started? How did the purity culture movement get started? What is really the origins of it? Well, the purity culture movement typically is traced back to basically the beginning of the 1990s. I I will argue that it was already present in some way, shape, or form, at least in the 1980s, because some of these ideas were so common when I was a teenager and I became a Christian and, and there in a Southern Baptist church. It was it was all over the place. It was basically the my Christianity was okay. I guess you believe in Jesus, but really Christianity was basically equated to these things: don't dance, 
don't listen to secular music and don't have sex. Okay. That was basically secular music is evil. Don't have sex. Whatever you do, don't have sex and dancing is bad. Okay. Don't do those three things. Like as long as you don't do those three things, no one's going to call into question your Christianity. It really wasn't about the grace of God. It, I mean, I mean, I know those things were talked about, but really in the, at least in the perception of the minds of a teenager, Christianity was reduced to those things, which was, which was very unfortunate because instead of getting a grace-based perspective, a theologically grounded perspective of what Christianity is, it really was all you have to do is avoid those three things because those three things are the beginning of the end of your Christian life. Uh, and again, I, if you went back and probably spoke to the preachers and teachers at that time, they would probably argue that's not what they were trying to do. But youth ministry seemed to be always about that, always about those three things. The music you listen to, dancing, and sex, it, it seems to be. But they say it began in the 1990s. And here's what was happening. Christians who were children or teens during the beginning of the 1960s, 60s era sexual revolution, began to have children and teenagers of their own. So you have basically the parents who were a part of the sexual revolution. They are, they've now had their own children. Okay. Um, and, uh, by the early, by the early years of the 1990s, AIDS had become the number one cause of death for the United States. Uh, the, of the, oh, let me read this again. AIDS became the number one cause of death for United States men ages 25 to 44. And the teen pregnancy rate had reached an all time high. The number of premarital sex partners had also increased substantially since the 1970s. For example, in the 1970s, only 2% of American women had had more than 10 sexual partners before marriage. In the 1990s, that percentage, that percentage had increased to 10%. In 2010, it was 18%. So here's what happens. Christians are looking out the window again, right? They're looking out the window and they're like, whoa. We're seeing the fruits. We are, we are now, we are reaping what the sexual revolution has sown, and it is bad. We've got AIDS. We've got teen pregnancy. We've got promiscuity. This is bad. We've got to do something about it. And so many times when the church decides to do something about what's happening in the evil culture, listen to me. Listen to what I'm about to say, because I know some of you are going to disagree. We come up. We always think we have to craft some new concept, some new method, some new solution. Let me tell you, the sexual revolution and the fruits, what was, what was being harvested, what was being reaped from the sexual revolution, it didn't need a new method. It didn't need a new strategy. It didn't need a new ministry. It needed the same ministry that the church has always been given, go and preach the gospel. The gospel was the answer. The gospel was the answer. But so many times the church abandons the preaching of the gospel. It, it, it abandons go and preach, go and teach. Preach, baptize, teach. The evangelism, baptism, bring them into the church, and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. 
That that is the biblical model. But the biblical model is always hijacked when we see an immediate concern, an immediate concern, immediate danger, immediate tragedy spurs this idea that we've got to come up with, hey, the old idea is not working. We need something new. And so many times what we come up with is a fleshly attempt to resolve a problem that can only be resolved through the gospel. Instead of a gospel approach, we we usually turn to legalism and something fleshly. That's almost always what we do, and this is kind of what happens. So, um, that's what's going on in culture. At that time, many evangelicals were reacting to the negative effects of sex outside of marriage in attempts to once again ground sexuality in biblical ethics. So here we go. We see what's happening. We're like, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. We got to fix this. In 1992, Richard Ross, a youth minister consulting at Lifeway Christian Resources, presented the theme for True Love Waits and a brainstorming session for potential Christian sex education campaign. Hey, we need a a Christian sexual education campaign. We've got a major problem. Sexual sin is rampant. Promiscuity is rampant. We need a Christian sex education program. That's what we need. I said, we need the gospel and we need discipleship. We need prayer. We need revival, biblical concepts. No, we need sex education. That's how we're going to fix this. That's how, and again, it's, it's built into the, the church's DNA, I think, that, oh, problem. Oh, let's have a brainstorming session. Not problem. Let's repent. Let's look at our own spiritual lives. Let's, let's be more committed to prayer. Let's be more committed to repenting of our own sins. Let's be more committed to preaching the gospel. Let's be more committed to discipleship. No, 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 no. We need a sex education program. This is how it all works. And guess what? That new program was going to be True Love Waits. Oh, do you remember that? Oh, I, anyone who was a Christian in the 90s remembers this. A year later, the Southern Baptist adopted the program with the goal of 100,000 signed commitment cards. Now, just, just see the irony of this. So in 1993, the Southern Baptists adopt the True Love Waits campaign, 100,000 signed commitment cards, purity pledges. And, and here in 2022, the Southern Baptist Convention, well, a report was just released about sexual abuse and rape and molestation and cover-up within that church, within that entire denomination. I mean, you can't just ignore that, right? Can you? I don't think you can. Now, so so they had 100,000 signed commitment cards, purity pledges, by the time of the next annual convention. In 1994, True Love Waits had a rally in Washington, D.C. with 25,000 youth and, disp- and displayed 210,000 commitment cards on the National Mall between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. Four years later, we all know what happens four years later, Joshua Harris, or Josh Harris, publishes his first book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which promoted abstinence and popularized the concept of courting as an alternative to dating. The book went on to sell more than a million copies and became a primary text for the purity culture movement. Harris later issued a statement expressing the concerns about the book and asked his publisher to discontinue its publication. He also produced a document, a a documentary, He also produced a film, okay, uh, called I Survived Kissed, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. A documentary, yes. He produced a documentary 
I survived, I kissed dating goodbye, where he basically renounces the whole concept. So the Southern Baptist, who was very much in promoting purity culture, well, by the time you get to 2022, there, there wasn't even purity culture within the denomination. There was horrible things happening, crimes occurring, okay? And it was cover-up, 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 cover-up. And now they've had to apologize, and who knows how that whole situation is going to play out. Joshua Harris, Josh Harris, who, or Joshua, I think, is what, what's on the cover. Joshua Harris goes on to become like the guru of I kiss dating goodbye. And then parents were like, okay, this is how my kids are going to do this. You're not going to date anymore. You're going to do this and you're going to follow this rule and you're going to follow this rule and you're going to follow this rule and you're going to follow this rule. We don't really, we don't even care if you really are a Christian or not a Christian. This is what you're going to do. Again, almost just forgetting the gospel. The gospel almost became secondary. Your sexual purity became primary the gospel, doctrine, theology, and biblical discipleship became secondary. Now, I know people will argue, but that's what happened because we became preoccupied with what the, the, the immorality of the culture, and so we had to come up with ways of fixing it. Instead of turning to the gospel, turning to discipleship, we turned to purity pledges, purity rings, Purity balls, where father and daughter would go to the purity ball. We we came up with all of these concepts. This was going to fix it. This was going to change it. This was going to fix everything. Was purity culture effective in reducing premarital sex? All right, now, here is some statistics. Now, there are probably statistics that would argue these statistics, but here is what they have to say. After the launch of the True Love Waits movement, there was a significant decline between 1995 and 2002 in sexual activity for girls girls age 15 to 17 and boys ages 15 to 18. I'll stop right here. So many Christians will say, we succeeded we succeeded. We declined sexual activity. We did it. We, we accomplished it. Now, one, was the goal, what, what, was, what was the goal? To reduce sexual immorality or to present the gospel and disciple young Christians? What was, what was more the goal? Now, I know this is going to get controversial, but I think sometimes the goal was more like we just don't want our kids to have sex than it is we worry about their spiritual condition, their theological beliefs, or their discipleship. Well, in fact, in many cases, I don't think parents even really cared to hear what their kids believed or didn't believe. They just assumed their kid was a Christian because the kid was raised in the church, and this is, this is what we want from you. So was, what's, how do you measure success? spiritual maturity, growth, and true conversion, or do you measure it by how much sex someone is having or not having? The the proportion of never married females 15 to 17 years of age who had sexual intercourse dropped from 38%. I got my iPad having things popped up. Dropped from 38% in 1995 to 30% in 2002. For male teens, the percentage of those who were sexually experienced dropped in both age groups from 43% to 31% at age 15 to 17, and from 75% to 64% from age 18 to 19. Teen pregnancies also dropped dramatically over the next 30 years. It's unclear, though, how much credit the movement deserves for these trends. That's very important. Was it the purity culture or what, what, what changed? What changed? 
Did the fear of sexually transmitted disease have something to do with it? What, what, what changed? I mean, they, they, some would want to take credit for it, some would want. But my thing is, I'm not going to get into the statistical debate. I'm saying, what was the, me- what was the measure of success? Hey, they no longer have sex, but now they're just scarred when it comes to sexuality that's going to have prolonged impact when they go into marriage and who knows how the, the negative impact. It may have impacted them negatively spiritually, but we don't care about that. They didn't have, it's almost like s- sexuality became more important than gospel, spirituality, and discipleship. That, that's, that's how I see it. A study published in 2009 found that sexual behavior for teens who had taken the purity pledge does not differ from that of closely matched non-pledgers. So in 2009, after doing some extensive study, they found that really it didn't do much. It didn't really do much. Five years after the pledge, 82% of pledgers denied having ever pledged. (laughs) Another study found the sexually transmitted diseases infection rate for those who had taken the pledge also did not differ from the non-pledgers. So when you get to 2009 and they do study, no, guess what? It didn't, it didn't seem to have any effect. It did not seem to have any effect. Now, th- this is from a Christian publication. This is a Christian publication going, hey, the study they are citing is saying, look, it, it didn't do anything. Now, those who are promoting it, the parents who are promoting it then, how many of them have said, man, I think maybe we made a mistake. You know why I think you made a mistake? Because I think you replaced the gospel and discipleship with a fleshly attempt to try to get people to follow biblical morality. It was a fleshly attempt. It was a fleshly attempt to to try to get people to adhere to biblical morality. And, And the flesh can't do that. Now, They go on to talk about some of the, uh, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. I was going to skip this, but we'll just talk about this. What are the criticisms of the purity culture? Well, m- my criticism is it's a fleshly attempt to maintain biblical morality. I believe what comes from it is you create sexual sin is the greatest sin of all. That's the only thing that really matters. Your entire sanctification is determined by sex. I think it, it, it treats women, at least in the sense that, hey, all you have to offer is purity. And if you lose that, you're basically... You're basically trash. And, and, and somehow I don't think the boys got that same message. It seemed to be more on the girls. And then it seemed to place the responsibility that, hey, guys, they're in trouble. They can't control themselves. Ladies, it's your responsibility to make sure they don't sin. And if they sin, somehow it's your fault. I think that those were some of the negative things that arose from it. Let's see what they have to say. Criticism of the purity culture comes in two general forms, Bible-based and secular-based. Bible-based concerns about the movement tend to align with the criticisms Harris made of his own book. It overemphasized the importance of sex, de-emphasized grace, and added unnecessary rules to male-female relationships, as he said in his statement. There are other weaknesses, too. In an effort to set a high standard, the book emphasized practices, not dating, not kissing before marriage, and concepts giving your heart away that are not in the Bible. And trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, it instilled fear for some, fear of making mistakes or having their heart broken. The book also gave some the impression that certain methodology of relationships would deliver a happy ever after ending, a great marriage, a great sex life, even though this is not promised by scripture. 
The other category of criticism comes from those who reject the biblical perspective on sexuality and frame their concerns on a secularized view of sexuality. While they agree with the Bible-based critics about the movement promoting fear and shame, they also think abstinence before marriage is an outdated concept, that is, a movement promotes gender-based stereotypes, and that it is wrong to exclude homosexual relationships. So you've got the, you've got the biblical-based criticism, and you've got the secular-based criticism. You've got two different bases of criticism. Well, the secular view, let's just summarize the secular view. We don't care about biblical morality. We don't, we don't believe in biblical morality. So all of our attempts to try to get the world to embrace biblical morality is foolish right from the start because you're trying to get an unregenerate person to live like they are regenerate, which never did we not learn anything in the Old Testament. Israel had every advantage, but having the law, having prophets, even having God in your midst doesn't change the unregenerate heart. That requires an inward work of grace. That requires a effectual grace of God. That is the effectual call. I mean, we can get into all of this regeneration. That's what, that's what's required. And that's a sovereign work of God. And so many times we want to remake the world, quote unquote, in the image of God by, well, by force or by laws or by rules or by new dating techniques or by a new methodology. And then we just forget the gospel in all of it. Well, the world needs the gospel. That's what they need. They don't need rules. They need the gospel. Now, God's law needs to be used to show them their sin, but they need the gospel. And guess what the church needs? The gospel. This is an abandonment of the gospel where sexual purity became the goal, not conversion and discipleship. That is where everything began to fall apart. All right? Now, I'm going to go here to what was sent to me, which is a Twitter thread where this female stated, purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism. And she begins to tell a little bit of her story in this thread. All right. This is called the dangers of purity culture thread. All right. This is what some of the things she says. She, she starts with, I'll preface this by saying that everything shared in this thread is based on personal experience as well as biblical study. You're welcome to disagree, but purity culture is dangerous and toxic no matter how you spin it. I was raised in it. I have literal horror stories. Now stop right here. As you listen, I want you to think, is she, is she throwing out biblical purity or purity culture? Which one is she throwing out? Here we go. Number one. When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to wear pants or shorts because I was a girl. I was taught that men would lust after the form of my legs, so I should be covered to the knee at all times in order to prevent men from sinning. The responsibility of men's sin was on me. Now that, I believe, very much arises from purity culture in this sense. It's trying to say, look, your responsibility, which I think begins to be majorly problematic. But here's the question. Forget purity culture and the way this was handled. Biblical purity, biblical theology, biblical teaching. What does biblical teaching say in regards to our responsibility for others? Am I I my brother's keeper? I think someone asked that. I think someone asked that in the Bible. Who was that? Does anybody remember who that was? Am I, I'm, I'm joking. 
Cain asked that question when God asked him, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility? Is it my responsibility? Well, in the New Testament, we come up with a very clear concept, and it's this. You may have the liberty to do something. You may have the right to do something. But if that liberty and that right causes someone else to sin, you are to give up that liberty and that right so that you do not cause someone else to sin. You have to think about others more than yourself. Like that, that, that's not, forget purity culture, forget all the horrible things purity culture did with that concept. This is a biblical concept. You have to think about others more than you think of yourself. This is, this is, forget, this is, remove it from the concept of sexuality. Think of it this way. The Bible uses this concept in regards to eating meat offered unto idols. Hey, Eating meat offered unto idols, well, there's, it doesn't do anything because an idol is nothing, doesn't harm the meat. You're free to eat it. Give God thanks and you're free to eat it. But if eating that meat causes someone to stumble, you don't eat that meat in front of them. You stop eating it. You abstain from eating it. You're like, but I have the right to do so. Yeah, and you give up that right for other people because you're worried about their spiritual growth. You're worried about their godliness, not just your own. Remember, the whole, the Christian worldview is, you deny self, you die to self, and you no longer follow self, and you place others before yourself. And nobody likes that biblical morale, that biblical ethic. So remove it from sexuality. This comes to anything. You may have liberty, but you don't always throw that in everyone else's faces because you don't know how it will hurt others. Now, how do we bring this into the realm of sexuality? This is where it gets messy, Right? And this, and it gets messy for this reason. Sometimes the responsibility is put on the female and not the male. The response, now I think both have a responsibility, both. And somehow this got lost in the translation, but it's not even about sex. As a male, you have a responsibility not to do anything to cause someone else to stumble. And if you're a female, you have the responsibility not to do any. Both have mutual responsibilities not to cause the other to stumble. Now, in most cases, the emphasis is placed on the female because it's typically viewed that the man, well, his pro- all he has to do is see something and it's over. It's over. Because let's be fair. The Bible does place a certain, I know it's applicable to both. It's applicable to both male and female. I, I know it's applicable to both, but it's almost always taught in regards to men that if a man looks at a woman with lust, he has committed adultery in his heart. He's an adulterer, right? Now, I think we would agree that that's also would be applicable if a woman looks at a man with lust, that she would be guilty as well. That if anyone, in other words, the concept here is that sexual morality goes beyond just the physical act. It involves the the mind, the desire. It involves those kinds of things. So this one becomes problematic because it's typically viewed that the men are the ones who have the problem, right? That if the men see anything, boom, they're going to stumble. So then the burden of responsibility somehow is placed on the woman. And I, and I, I understand how that can happen, but put it this way. You can't just throw out the concept because it's been abused. Abuse of a concept is not grounds for rejection of a concept. Abuse of a biblical passage is not grounds for rejecting a biblical passage. How's it? Both have a responsibility. 
both end of both parties have a responsibility not to cause the other to stumble. In your Christian life, you should do everything in your power not to cause someone else to stumble. But both have the responsibility. It can't just be, well, just the men's responsibility, the female. And it doesn't have to, sometimes we reduce it to what you're wearing. It can be, it can be a lot more than just what you're wearing. It can be so many different things can lead to problems in this area. You both have a responsibility. Both. Sometimes it gets placed on the woman. Sometimes it gets placed on the man. Both have a responsibility. Now, the woman's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, look, I, I think you can, I think, I think people can go over the top and, you know, basically want to go, you know, to Islam where you have to wear, you know, basically, you know, a hijab, a, a burqa. You have to, you have to basically, you know, cover yourself from head to toe. And they're like, okay, man, now maybe no guys will have a problem. Okay. I, now look, for the, for non-Christians, I understand. Non-Christians are like, this is just ridiculous. This is stupid. It's not my problem. It's your problem. I understand. In a non-Christian worldview, you're right. It's not your problem. It's my problem. In a Christian worldview, your spirituality and my spirituality are connected in this sense. I can't do anything to cause you to stumble, and you shouldn't be doing anything to cause me to stumble. The problem is, though, each person has their own responsibility. So, for a Christian woman, I don't think these should be rules. I think for a Christian woman, it has to be taught that as a Christian, you should consider how your actions impact others, not just in dress, not just in regards to sexuality, in regards to everything. Somehow this got reduced to sexuality and became that became the issue. And I think that that's problematic because it almost becomes the woman's responsibility. Now this, now, this is very important. Even if someone's doing something that caused you to stumble, you're still responsible. You can't say, well, you caused me to stumble. It's all on you. No, it's your responsibility. It, we, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. So this was very difficult. And, and I don't think those who started trying to teach some of this, I don't think that they were intentionally trying to create some fleshly purity culture. I think, I think whenever we attempt to take biblical principles and flesh them out in a way that is practical, it can become ugly in exactly how do we do this in a good way. And sometimes, listen, sometimes people misunderstand sermons. Sometimes a sermon can really, like people will say, this is what I was taught. And I'm like, well, let me hear the sermon. And you go back and listen to the sermon. You're like, you didn't hear that part? You didn't hear that part? You ignored that part? Because I've had people tell me, you said this in a sermon, and I go back and I'm like, you didn't listen because I just went back and listened to it. It's not how you described it. That was a complete misrepresentation. People hear what they want to hear. So she said when she was growing up, she, was, she wasn't allowed to wear pants or shorts because I was a girl. All right. I was taught that. And again, this is imposing rules. These are, these are the, this is the whole, ex, I'm going to place these external rules on you. What, what you really want is for the young person who's growing up in their faith, that, that, that some of these things, they have to take responsibility for themselves. When you just impose a rule on someone, it rare, it doesn't change the heart at all. It usually promotes rebellion. Now, I'm not saying that you can never put rules on kids. I'm saying that at some point as they grow older, you got to give them some leeway to figure out and work out their own faith with fear and trembling. 
Uh, I was taught that men would lust after the form of my legs, so I should be converted, I should be covered to the knee all the times in order to prevent men from sinning. The responsibility of men's sin was on me. See how that was put, how she understood that? Now, maybe she was taught exactly that way, and that would be greatly unfortunate. What should be taught is the Bible says that what we may have the liberty to do something, we may have the right to do something, but sometimes we give up said right for the benefit of other people. Now, how do we work that out in a spiritual way? And this, again, Paul, this is in 1 Corinthians. He talked, giving up eating meat if it causes someone to stumble. Most Christians today would think that's ridiculous. If, there, if there's three vegans in your church, or vegetarians are like, you know what? Eating meat offends me. I don't know how you can do that. I think it's cruel. I think it's evil. I think it's ungodly. How can you do this? Well, the church should be willing to give up eating meat during those fellowships for those vegans. And guess what? Christians would be like, absolutely not. Now, you, the problem is, how do you work this out? Because then the, the person who eats meat could say, well, not eating meat offends me. So the vegan should eat meat. Like, yeah, it becomes, you can throw it back and forth against each other. But the point is, we should do everything we can to help the other person. That's the goal. The goal should be mutual desire for all Christians to grow spiritually and to be, from a biblical perspective, as faithful as they can to be to God. We should do everything we can to help that. I don't know what the answer is. And I know what some women would say. Well, it's not my, my problem. But you're right. And some, it, It's the man's responsibility. But from a biblical perspective... It's all of our responsibility. Now, again, there's going to be a major pushback on this, but I think that has to be discussed. Now, she goes on to say, I never had any kind of sex talk growing up. No one even explained now, her, her cycle. I'm, I'm just going to read it the way she has it, okay? So if you, if you have kids, you may want to stop right now, right, if you don't want to talk about this because we know a Disney movie made, made everyone upset about this issue. So here we go. I never had any kind of sex talk growing up. No one even explained my period to me. I had to figure it out on my own while my mom was hospitalized and I lived in a bus at the time. So I had literally no one to help me. I was ashamed to even talk about it to my own Mother, now, is that is that purity culture? Is that purity culture that that happened? Maybe the reason no one explained it to you is because maybe you or your mom was in the hospital. Maybe I, I don't know. I, I just don't know how purity how is purity culture getting the blame for that? Are you saying purity culture was a culture which those those parents who really believed in purity culture they were like, okay, sh- don't ever talk to our kids about the S word. Never mention it. Is, is that purity culture or is that just parents not knowing what to do? And maybe, maybe that's something how they're, they were raised. Maybe that has nothing to do with purity culture. I don't know if purity culture can get the, it's just funny. Once, once something starts being attacked, everyone throws everything at it. Boom, boom, boom. I was raised and no one gave me the sex talk. It's purity culture's fault. I, I don't know. I, I, I would argue that they probably gave you the talk and maybe they gave you a talk in a way that, gave you a bad understanding of it, but okay. They go on to say, um, sleeveless tops were prohibited and my neckline lower than the three finger rule was not allowed. This was again to protect men. Some churches went as far as to say that elbows resembled breast and should remain covered to prevent lust. Sounds insane, but real. Now, again, I agree. 
that many churches place the responsibility on the woman, 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 on the woman. And, but I can't, I can't just overlook the fact the Bible does say we both, we're both responsible to trying to ensure that we don't cause anyone any trouble. I don't, I'm not seeing that there's a simple rule there because I, what some women would say, it doesn't matter what I wear, a man will lust. That's probably true. But it, but at the same time, you have a responsibility. How do we balance that out? I think the th- last thing we can do is by promoting rules. Rules don't fix it. Rules don't fix it. They don't. They don't. All right, because I know in I know in high school. Uh, there were uh, Pentecostal girls who, who wore no makeup, they didn't cut their hair, wore no jewelry, had dresses all the way down to their ankle. And I can explain, I can definitely say that some of them were very much involved in premarital sex, okay? And there were clearly men, uh, there were uh, boys in the school who were attracted to them, even though they were doing all of those things. So that didn't seem to matter. So that didn't, that didn't fix the, put it this way. It it doesn't make, just because it's this weird idea. I think sometimes in purity culture that if you do this and this and this, the desire just goes away. The desire, I don't know if you know this, is natural. It's built into the human body. It's the natural, it's a natural desire. It's, it's there. It, you, you can't just make it go away because of whatever. All right. So, all right. Um, it says here, um, I wasn't allowed to wear makeup till I was 16, and even then I had to beg my dad to allow it. He would he would uh, show me YouTube videos of the power of makeup if he thought mine was too seductive or heavy. I was just a kid trying to find my way, and I was crushed at every turn. Now, again, it was that purity culture. Was that purity culture, or was that an o- overprotective father? I mean, was was the father trying to crush you? Was your father trying to destroy you? Or was the father maybe worried about protecting you? I mean, I mean, sometimes I know when you, when kids grow up, they always assign nefarious uh, motives to the parents for what they were trying to do. Sometimes the parents were trying to make the best decision they could to try to protect you and maybe went about it in the wrong way. I mean, is that ever a possibility in these discussions? I, I don't know. This person goes on to say, um, next, there was never any biblical explanation for any of this other than that we shouldn't be a stumbling block to our brothers in Christ. It's our job to protect them. This led to deep shame for me and other girls growing up in the culture. We were ruthlessly scrutinized. Now, if there was no biblical explanation, okay, um, other than you shouldn't be a stumbling block. If there was no other biblical explanation, then this would be an example where the church so elevated this one issue over the gospel and discipleship, which I believe is a legitimate criticism of purity culture. I believe that is a legitimate criticism of it. Now, I'm going to stop here because we're at 50 minutes. And we may have to work through all of these things stated in this thread. But I think as you go through this thread, what you're going to see is sometimes you're like, is that, are you criticizing purity culture? Are you just, what are you criticizing? Are you criticizing biblical? None of these things, I think none of these things even come close to addressing true biblical passages that deal with these very important issues. The Bible says we have to be pure, calls for purity, right? 
The Bible clearly seems to acknowledge no one's ever going to do it perfectly. We're going to fall short. That's why we have to be saved by an imputed righteousness. And at the same time, the Bible seems to say that we are to deny ourselves, die to self, put others before ourselves. And that means we have to do everything we can not to use liberty or freedom in order to cause someone else to stumble. But that's the responsibility of both parties, both individuals. I think purity culture was the church's attempt to try to fix the, the impurity in the world through fleshly means. And that they, it, it, they placed sex above, well, the gospel, above grace, above Bible. And they placed it almost as the end-all, be-all, which was problematic. Now, there are plenty of people who have come out of purity culture with horror stories that they were damaged by it, that they never could have a, a, an intimate life again that was ever, ever satisfying because they were so scarred by it, that they, they felt sexual intimacy was dirty, that it was wrong. And many of those things are very damaging things that came out of it that were very detrimental and very hurtful. Um, and that has to be addressed. Now, in some cases, was it purity culture that led to that way of thinking? Or was that already in the thinking of the parent? Was that already thinking, like, how, how did it come about? What was said? And I think it just there's a reminder that we have the Bible. And so many times when we take these biblical concepts and we start saying, this is what we need to do, we sometimes come up with the most fleshly ways in which to try to accomplish them. We teach the biblical concepts. We teach them, right? We, we preach the grace of God. We preach this is what God calls us to do. And sometimes we don't always need a program and rules to make it happen because rules rare, rarely make anything happen. I think we see that all the time. All right, I'll stop there. You can tell me what you think about this very, I know, controversial concept, but you can let me know. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I would like to, like some grand conclusion here, but we're, we're, we can't really conclude it because we're right here in the middle of it. So I, I can't come up with some great summary, but we've dealt with a lot of very important points, right? Kind of the origins of it, why it came about, some of the problems that arose from it, and most importantly, drawing a distinction between biblical purity and what I will call purity culture, which is a fleshly attempt to try to achieve and promote biblical purity. That, I think, are the positives, that, that some of the lessons that we're taken from this. All right, I'll stop there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Please let me know your thoughts and all of this. God bless.